Let us read in God's word this evening first from Hebrews chapter 3. And we'll turn a few chapters to Hebrews 10 and read some verses from there as well. We read these verses in connection with the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 31, the final question and answer which teach us about Christian discipline. So as we read through these verses of Hebrews 3 and 10, I encourage you to look for instruction from God's Word about whose duty it is to exhort and admonish one another. Hebrews 3, let's begin our reading at verse 7 and read through the end of the chapter. Hebrews 3, 7, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the day of provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. For some, when they heard, did provoke. Albeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And then Hebrews chapter 10. Let's begin our reading at verse 16. And we'll read through verse 29. Hebrews 10, verse 16, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having, therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, 
there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despot unto the Spirit of grace. We stop our reading of God's Word at that point. May God bless the reading of His holy and inerrant Word unto our hearts. It's on the basis of these passages of Scripture and many others besides that we find the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 31. Focus this evening is on the final question and answer, 85. Let's read first 83 to remind us of the context here. Question 83, what are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline or excommunication out of the Christian church. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is opened to believers and shut against unbelievers. And then going down to question and answer 85. How is the kingdom of heaven shut and opened by Christian discipline? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, those who under the name of Christians maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent therewith and will not, after having been often brotherly admonished, renounce their errors in wicked course of life, are complained of to the church or to those who are thereunto appointed by the church. And if they despise their admonition, are by them forbidden the use of the sacraments, whereby they are excluded from the Christian church and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. And when they promise and show real amendment, are again received as members of Christ and his church. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, we consider this evening the weighty and sobering and difficult subject of Christian discipline. It is something that nobody wants used against them personally. Is something that all of us who are confessing members of the church promise that we will submit unto. It is something that is so very, very difficult to do in the proper way. Some think they're doing discipline work. They take that sword and they swing that sword around ruthlessly like Peter cutting off Malchus's ear. And they're convinced in their hearts that they're doing kingdom work, discipline work. They're convinced in their souls that they're the last ones standing for truth. They're not doing Christian discipline so hard to do properly how can you remove 
pride, all pride from your heart before you go to the neighbor and address the neighbor in his or her sins. It's not possible for us of ourselves perfectly to carry out the work of Christian discipline. And yet it is something that Jesus Christ commands us to do. And Jesus is pleased to use it for the preservation, for the protection, and for the peace of his church. Where there is no Christian discipline done or where there is even a deficiency. Maybe some are doing it, but there's a deficiency of Christian discipline and there is no peace in the walls of Jerusalem. So may God strengthen us this evening that we might be able to receive instruction from our fathers in the catechism as well instruction from His Word about the character of Christian discipline. May He humble us where we have failed to exercise Christian discipline, that we might confess and repent of those failures. And then may He give us boldness that we might then, by His grace, go forward exhorting and admonishing one another for the return of Jesus Christ. Consider with me this evening the keys of the kingdom, Christian discipline. First we'll ask who, second how, how is discipline to be done, and third, why. Who, two questions we ask with regard to in, or in this first point. First, Who is it that is the object of Christian discipline? Second, who is the one who administers, performs Christian discipline? Beginning then with the question of who is the object or the recipient of Christian discipline, the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us This in the beginning of answer 85, it is those who under the name of Christians. That's a starting point there here for who is the object of discipline. It's those who under the name Christians. That is those who call themselves Christians. It's only professing Christians who are the objects of Christian discipline. It is not the duty of the church to discipline the world. We are to let our light shine before men so that it might be evident to the world that we belong unto Jesus Christ, but we are not the rulers over this world. The objects, the recipients of discipline are those who call themselves Christians. Those who are Christians then must be reminded of the fact that we have promised when we make confession of faith in the Christian church to submit to Christian discipline. This is found in the back of our Psalters, the questions that are answered at the time of the public confession of faith, found right before the form for the administration of the Lord's Supper on page 90. Question number three, will you submit to church government and in case you should become delinquent, which may God graciously forbid, to church discipline? It is sadly far too often the case that as soon as the elders begin working, with an erring member of the church, that they seek to escape that discipline 
by asking for their membership papers. In doing that, they violate the oath that they publicly swore before Jesus Christ and before the church of Jesus Christ when they swore that they would submit to church government and even in cases of delinquency, in cases of sin and impenitence in that sin, they swore that they would submit to church discipline. The object of Christian discipline is, in the first place, the one who calls himself Christian. But then, to go further here, it is, in the second place, the one who maintains doctrines or practices that are inconsistent therewith. That is, doctrines or practices that are inconsistent with the name of Christian. So the idea here is that there's a standard that is set. And this standard is set for Christianity by the great King of the church, Jesus Christ. That standard is the law of God. And that standard is to govern the confession, the doctrine, and the lifestyle of the members of that kingdom of Jesus Christ. The object or the recipient of Christian discipline then is the one who confesses Jesus Christ, but who maintains doctrine or has practices in his life that are inconsistent with that law of Jesus Christ. It's important here that we understand and emphasize that word of the catechism, maintain, those who maintain doctrines or practices that are inconsistent therewith. And the idea of maintaining doctrines or practices is that they continue and they persist in those sins. The lawful object of Christian discipline is not the individual who stumbles and falls into a sin, but who very shortly after having fallen into sin recognizes the seriousness of what he has done, and who then acknowledges and confesses that sin, repents of it, that is not the lawful object of Christian discipline. But it is the one who maintains these ungodly confessions or practices. The person who is, we would say, impenitent in it who has been admonished, has had that that sin brought to their attention and been told to repent of that sin, and yet who after having received admonishment continues in that particular sin. That's the object of Christian discipline. Now, who is the one whose duty it is to perform Christian discipline. I think if I had been asked this question as a child, I would have pointed to that row right there. It's the elders. Exclusively the elders' duty to perform the work of Christian discipline. And although it's true that the elders are indeed the ones to whom Jesus Christ has entrusted the keys of the kingdom of heaven, we are wrong if we think that it is the elders and the elders only whose duty it is to exercise Christian discipline. Whose duty is it to exhort one another, to call others to repentance and faith 
in Jesus Christ, it's everyone's duty. Everyone who is a believing, confessing child of God has the duty to bring brotherly admonishments to the erring brother or sister. That's the starting point for Christian discipline. It does not start in the elder's bench, but it starts among the people of God. Allow me to prove that to you. First of all, here from the Catechism itself. We read in the answer to question 85, how is the kingdom of heaven shut and opened by Christian discipline? The answer thus, when according to the command of Christ, those who under the name of Christians maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent therewith and will not after having been brotherly admonished, renounce their errors and wicked course of life, are complained of to the church. First, there's a brotherly admonishment that's brought. Then, they are complained of to the church. And the idea of the church here is those who rule over the church, the elders. So according to the instruction of the catechism, the exercising of the key of Christian discipline begins with the brotherly admonishment that the people of God bring one to another. And then we see this duty as well prescribed to us in the Word of God. Hebrews 10, starting at verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. So we're speaking here of those who have confessed, professed their faith. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. 24, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Whose duty is it then, according to these verses, to admonish and exhort one another, especially unto faithfulness and in coming into God's house? It's those who have professed their faith. It's not just the elders whose duty it is to watch and see if the sheep are coming to partake of the means of grace, but it's the duty of all of us who have professed our faith to mutually hold each other accountable with regard to coming to church. Hebrews 3, we see further proof in the Word of God. Hebrews 3, verse 12, 13 Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Whose duty, according to this verse, the brethren, those who are part of the church. One more proof from God's word. This from First Thessalonians, chapter five. In First Thessalonians, the apostle Paul is correcting a misunderstanding that the saints of Thessalonica had regarding the end times. They had become idle, busybodies, gossips. It stopped their work. So Paul was correcting that misunderstanding and admonishing them to 
Remain faithful until the return of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another as also ye do. And that word translated as comfort could also be translated as exhort. Wherefore, exhort yourselves together. This is part of what it means, beloved, to belong to the church of Jesus Christ. We need these mutual friendships and accountability in order to grow in the Christian faith and in the Christian walk. It is not in isolation, but it is in the fellowship of the body of Jesus Christ that God is pleased to expose our sins and our weaknesses, bring us again to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, that there we might find the satisfaction for our sins in our beloved Lord and Savior. And so we must be on guard against the spirit of independentism, must be on guard against having a haughty spirit that imagines that one can exist independent of or separate of the church of Christ. But we are all members of that body, and we all need one another. And one of the primary ways in which we need one another is for that mutual accountability. And so as we examine our hearts and our souls, and this week as we prepare for the Lord's Supper next week Sunday, we do well to ask ourselves two questions. Number one, am I that person who would go to the fellow church member whom I know has a sin in his or her life and who has not repented of that sin? Would I go to that person and bring unto them a brotherly admonishment. And would I do it as the Heidelberg Catechism says often? After having been often brotherly admonished. You know what that requires? Love. If you don't love your neighbor, you will never chase down that neighbor who maintains doctrines or practices that are inconsistent with the Word of God. But love, love compels you to exhort them and call them to repentance. Number one, am I that person who would seek out the neighbor? Number two, we ask ourselves this question as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Who are my friends? Would my friends come to me if I am the individual who is straying from the laws of Christ? Or have I isolated myself from Christian godly friends who would hold me accountable? Have I made friends with the world who are not going to rebuke me who are not going to bring brotherly admonishments unto me, 
but who will serve as an echo chamber in my life and give me exactly the words that I want to hear, who are my friends. Especially young adults who have confessed their faith do well to focus on that second question, who are my friends. Would they admonish me? If they wouldn't, they don't love you. doesn't matter what they say. If they will not bring the word of God to you and correct you for your sins, they do not love you. How, then, do we carry out this work of exercising Christian discipline? We do well to remember the language of the Heidelberg Catechism that we are to give a brotherly admonition. Those who under the name of Christians maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent therewith and will not, after having been brotherly admonished. That we are to bring a brotherly admonishment means that the work of discipline is to be governed by the principle of love. And so as we speak here for a few moments about how, let us always remember that it's to be governed by love. Love for God and love for the neighbor. Love for God means in the first place that before I go to the brother or sister who is walking impenitently in sin, Before I go to the person who is abusing alcohol, before I go to the individual who is caught up in sins of infidelity against the seventh commandment, before I go to that brother or sister who has stolen from me or hurt me, love demands that I first confess my own sins. Jesus uses this illustration that we are first of all to cast out the beam that is in our own eye before we tend to the sliver that is in the neighbor's eye. That means then that we have to confess our fault. And that could very well mean that we have to confess our faults to the very individual whom we must go and admonish, calling them to repentance. See, oftentimes there are reactionary sins. Person A commits a sin against person B. Person B is so offended and so upset about what person A did that person B retaliates with anger. Well, if person B then is going to go to the individual who sinned against him, before he can do that, he first must apologize for his sinful reaction of anger. Forgive me when I lost control of my temper. How often do not we as parents have to do that as we discipline our children? It starts with self-discipline. Before we even go out to address the neighbor, We must ourselves acknowledge, confess, and repent of our own sins. And then we go. Oh, it takes courage to go. Great courage. We go in the confidence that we have 
the Spirit of Jesus Christ within us. We go with the confidence that we have access unto the Holy of Holies. And so arguing from the greater to the lesser, if we have access to the Holy of Holies, and we can go there with confidence, then ought we not also to be able to go to the erring brother or sister and bring the Word of God unto them. We go in love unto them. Love determines what we say to the erring brother or sister. We do not merely bring our own personal grievances. We are not speaking to them simply of things that they do that annoy us or things, actions that they perform that can get under our skin. Love overlooks many faults. But as we go to that neighbor who has sinned against us, we go unto them with the word of God. Not our own personal feelings or judgments, but we go with the word of God as the scriptures speak to the particular needs of that individual. That gives unto us the power to go unto them. We of ourselves would never dare to go unto them if we did not have the Word of God. And that gives unto us also then the power to convict. We don't convict, but the Word of God as the Spirit presses that Word upon their hearts. The Word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart of man. And that Word of God is as a two-edged sword which cuts and is the balm of Gilead, which heals. We bring the word when we go to the neighbor. Love governs not only what we bring, but love governs how we bring this brotherly admonishment. Do not use a sharp or judgmental or angry tone of voice, which oftentimes has the immediate effect of raising barriers, putting walls up, so that this individual is no longer interested in anything that you have to say because they can sense your anger and frustration with them. Love controls the volume in which we speak to those who are the objects of discipline. Again, parents, how often do we not need this reminder? It's not a shouting match with our children. We bring the Word of God and trust that the Word of God has power as it speaks to the sins of His own children. Love controls how I view the neighbor. I bring a brotherly admonishment. I view this individual as a brother in Jesus Christ until this person is excommunicated and put out of the kingdom of Christ. I continue to view them as a brother. But then, after having often brought brotherly admonishments, if they do not, according to the catechism, if they do not renounce their errors in wicked course of life, then the next step is this. They are complained of to the church. Matthew 18 tells us that we are to take one or two witnesses with us. If they do not repent, then tell it unto the church. The elders, when the matter comes before them in the proper way, are obliged to take up that work then of Christian discipline. They are those who must give an account for the souls who have been entrusted 
to their oversight. And so then the elders begin the work of discipline. The character of the elders' work of discipline is not so different from the character of the brotherly admonishments that are brought one to another. The elders do their labors, must do their labors, not as tyrants, not as those who have no concern for the souls underneath their care, not as those who are angry, not as those who have a personal vendetta or an agenda against this or that individual or family. But the elders do their works as those who love the members of the church of Jesus Christ. The elders are qualified for this work with the same qualifications that you and I have. Namely, they have been given the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And as the Spirit of Jesus Christ is within the hearts of the elders, that Spirit compels them to carry out this work with urgency, with prayer, and with humility. If then... The impenitent individual still does not heed the words of correction brought by the consistory. Then what? Then according to answer 85, if they despise their admonition, are by them forbidden the use of the sacraments, whereby they are excluded from the Christian church and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. Do you see, beloved, what is the seriousness of being barred from the Lord's table? To be barred from the table of the Lord is to be barred by God himself from the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And to be barred from the kingdom of Jesus Christ is to be barred from Jesus Christ himself. That's the seriousness of Christian discipline as it is exercised by the elders in the church of Christ. Hebrews chapter 10 speaks of the weightiness of this. Hebrews 10 verse 26, For if we sin willfully, After that we have received the knowledge of the truth, that is, after the word of God has been brought unto us, after our errors have been pointed out to us, yet if we sin willfully, persistently walking down that road of sin, then there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin but a fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing. That's the seriousness of rejecting the Christian admonitions that are brought unto the erring individual. It is to trod under foot the Son of God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If somebody believes that the consistory is wrong in their work, 
that they are innocent, then that individual has the right of protest and appeal. But that individual ought quickly to protest and appeal. Why? Why Christian discipline? I suppose any number of reasons, many reasons could be given for Christian discipline. One of the reasons is to remove the offense out of the church of Christ, which otherwise would stain that church. Sin, we've noted before, is like cancer. It spreads. Someone in the body has that sin. And that sin isn't dealt with and admonished. And there's repentance for that sin. And that sin spreads throughout this body. That's part of why Christian discipline is to be done. But that's not what we call our attention to this evening. This evening we return to that principle that we spoke of earlier, namely the principle of love. Why do we discipline? Exactly because we love God and we love the neighbor. Christian discipline has a different motive than the motive of the civil magistrate. They have power too given unto them. They have the power, not spiritual power, but sword power given unto them. But the civil magistrate, as they go about their work, they labor with a different motive. The motive of the civil magistrate is in order to maintain justice and equity. If the neighbor comes and he steals a certain sum of money, let's say he steals $10,000, then it's the duty of the state to make sure that there's justice, equity. The individual that stole that money must pay that money back to the individual from whom it was stolen. But the duty of the elders as they do Christian discipline and you and I as we bring brotherly admonishments is different. It's not to say we're unconcerned about equity, about justice, and about truth. But that's not our primary concern. If we were to loan the neighbor a sum of money and then that neighbor, instead of paying that money back, simply stole that money from us, if the very first thought that comes to our mind is, I must get that money back, it's my right, after all, to get that money back. And by that reaction, we show that we're more concerned about money than about the soul of the neighbor. primary duty, primary motive for Christian discipline is not to right that which is wrong. But the primary motive of Christian discipline is the concern for the brother's soul. It is because I am concerned that if this individual continues down that pathway, that they by that action reveal that they are not a child of God and thus are outside the kingdom of Jesus Christ, that I must bring unto them admonishments and exhortations from the Word of God. And when we understand here that we are striving for the souls of the church of Jesus Christ, then... Does that not heighten then the urgency of this matter of Christian discipline? 
This is not something that we can simply shrug our shoulders and say, well, I trust that somebody else is going to do this work of Christian discipline, but it's not my duty to bring brotherly admonishments unto this individual whom I know is walking in sin. No, there is no shrugging of the shoulders when one understands that this is a battle for the souls of the members of the church. How precious and how dear were the souls of the body of Jesus Christ unto our Lord. So precious that Jesus Christ did battle for those souls. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Christ battled not just against flesh and blood. Would that it were simply be a battle against flesh and blood, but this is a battle against principalities and powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. This is a battle against Lucifer, who once was the angel of light, but who now has fallen and become the angel of darkness, who is the prince of this world, who is a lion, roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, out of love for the souls of his people, battle the prince of darkness. And what did it cost him? His life. He laid down his own life to conquer the seed of the serpent so that the seed of the woman might have the victory. May this thought embolden, encourage us to be faithful in giving brotherly admonishments where needed to the members of the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God in heaven, who is sufficient for carrying out this work. It is not of ourselves. Of ourselves we are so weak. We struggle with pride and sinful motives and sinful manners in bringing and speaking Thy Word. Will Thou, Father, forgive us our sins? May we prepare faithfully as we anticipate partaking of the heavenly meat and drink next week, Sunday, bless us and give unto us joy in the knowledge of the finished work of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.